This past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, we began these 40 days of Lent, and we did so by bearing on our foreheads a symbol, this cross of ash that marks the lives of all of us who have remembered we are dust, and in the words of Jan Richardson, have remembered also what God can do with dust. And if you were with us for the service, you might have noticed my closing benediction and charge, really, to go in peace and as you go, to run an errand on your way home. Oh, sure, it had been a busy day. Sure, it was absolutely time to make it up to anyone that you brought to an Ash Wednesday service on Valentine's Day. But nonetheless, go to Target. Stop by the grocery store, at least stop and pump some gas. There's no shopping list, there's no specific task necessary, but just the practice of walking around in public with this cross of ash on your forehead. This has become an annual practice for me on Ash Wednesday evenings, which at first reminds how weird pastors can be, yes, but it's also rooted in a sense that at least once a year, and probably a lot more than that, I should do this. I should stop and let people know who I am. I should interrupt what is ordinary or typical and maybe project or communicate in some way. I believe that I am one for whom Christ died. And furthermore, I am a person seeking to live my life in this same way. And what if long after our foreheads were cleaned and clear, we lived in such a way that this was known about us. If in our day-to-day settings, our places of influence, our places of work, our families, amidst our tasks and to-do lists, this was the shape of our lives. The clarity that we are people of God who have tried to walk this way of self-giving love, this way of vulnerability and trust in God, this way that challenges the patterns and the powers and the systems of this world, if our lives said that we are people who have taken up the cross, which is the call of Jesus throughout the Gospels, take up your cross, follow me. And in the Gospel of Mark, it comes right in the middle of the story, in chapter 8 of this 16-chapter book. Jesus tells his disciples for the first time here about his suffering and death, his resolution toward it. They can hardly hear it at first. No, not you, Lord, Peter starts to say. But Jesus is adamant, is focused and resolved. In the Gospel of Luke, he has said to turn and set his face toward Jerusalem. Because he is that clear about the way that he is walking. But in truth, he had known this way long before he ever stated it out loud. He had walked it already. He had modeled it throughout his days. And not with word or symbol, but in the shape of his living. The whole of his life and ministry modeled another way. What will come to be termed the way of the cross. And he resolved to walk this way, to trust that he could do it, and that he would not be alone. He resolved to do all of this at first, I think, in the wilderness where we find him today. Every year, the first Sunday in Lent, it takes us out to the wilderness with Jesus. This is a place where many of us have been before. We know this dry place of denial where food and water are scarce, where the sun bears down and the way seems obscured and uncertain. And 
And that's where we find Jesus in his first public appearance, baptized in the middle of the desert with all of those wanderers standing around with their restlessness. And then he's led even further into the Spirit for 40 days. And it is the Spirit that leads him there into the desert. The Spirit drives him there, really, is the sense of the language, which says that there is something pivotal and holy that is to happen in the wilderness. In Frederick Buechner's words, this is the space where Jesus will decide what it means to be Jesus. And you can imagine how difficult, how arduous such a time. He's human after all, and so he doesn't fare much better than you or I would, than you or I do in such spaces. His baptism, it must have become a distant memory. There are no doves descending. The Jordan River probably feels like a mirage in the middle of that desert. There's no voice from heaven. Those words, you are my beloved son, I'm pleased in you, they no longer ring as loudly in his ears. And it is in this moment of vulnerability that the tempter sees him and sees an opening He was tempted by Satan, Mark describes. Now Mark is the straight-to-the-point, cliffsnote version of the story. But Matthew and Luke, you know, they fill it out with some additional detail. They describe three temptations, like turn stones into bread and satisfy your hunger. and Prove you are the Son of God with a simple stunt and say a word and just take power over all the kingdoms of the world. All three are specific concrete temptations, but in some ways, all three are the same because they tempt Jesus to shift confidence away from God to a substitute that promises to offer security and satisfaction, status and strength for him. And this tempter has been at this from the very beginning, always seeing this opening where it exists amidst the children of God. In many ways, the story of Adam and Eve is about this same sort of desire for control. It's not set in a desert, but instead in a paradise where all was provided except for the fruit of a certain tree. And so the tempter leads Adam and Eve up to a high place where they could see all that could be theirs if they would simply seize control of their own lives. God just doesn't want you to know what God knows. God doesn't want you to be as powerful as God is. God wants to control you, and it doesn't have to be this way. You can be in control of yourself. And this is when Adam and Eve aspire for that control, and in doing so, damage their relationship with God. They spoil the bond that exists between the two of them, and they even jeopardize how they live in and with all of God's good creation. They don't trust the Creator, you see, as much as they trust themselves. And this might be what is common to all temptation, and the tempter seems to know that we are weak here. Because this is always the temptation, to shift your confidence away from God and toward your own way, your own impulse, your own control. When the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, is at first a way of trust. In one of his books, Father Henry Nouwen, the Jesuit scholar and spiritual author, tells the story about friends of his who were trapeze artists. The flying rodellas, they were called. And one thing they described to Henry Nouwen is that there is a very special relationship that exists 
in this practice between the flyer and the catcher on the trapeze. Now the flyer is the one who lets go and the catcher is the one who catches. And as you might imagine, this relationship is important, especially to the flyer. When the flyer is swinging high above the crowd on the trapeze, that moment comes when the flyer must let go. The flyer arcs out into the air and their job is to remain as still as possible and to wait for the hands of the catcher to pluck them from the air. So the trapeze artist told Father Nowen that the secret is this, that the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer does nothing in this moment, and the catcher does everything, they said. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer, suspended in the air, in complete vulnerability, must wait in absolute trust. The flyer must be still and know that the catcher will catch them but they have to wait for this. A flyer must fly, they said, and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust trust with outstretched arms that their catcher will be there for them. And Father Nowen writes, remember that you are the beloved child of God and that God will be there when you make your long jump. Don't try to grab, God will catch you. You just stretch out your arms and your hands and you trust, trust, trust. And there is so much that Jesus can rush to try to grab hold of in this temptation story. There is so much that the tempter asks him to rush, to catch and to control, abandoning his trust in his mission from God in favor of something far more immediate and fulfilling. And the first temptation is social and economic for his ministry to become about turning stones to bread, which would have been a lot of good news for all of the hungry people throughout the world. Jesus, it seems, has the power to end human hunger in this split second. No one needs suffer from it again, but Jesus waits. Jesus trusts. And then there is this religious temptation to demonstrate a public display of supernatural power to throw himself down, to be caught up by angels, and it could have given this definitive proof about the existence of God, the Lordship of Jesus. There would not need to be any more doubts, just this proof. The world would fall at Jesus' feet to worship him. He would never have to take up a cross for it to be so, but Jesus seems to know that this is not how the world is saved. And so he stretches out, he opens his hands, He gives up his own way. And then there's that final desert temptation, which is of political nature. Jesus need only submit to the ruler of this world in order to achieve good for all of the people of this world. And I admit, this is the one where I almost wish he had caved in. He could have brought so much more justice to the world, to all of its governments and systems, all relief to those who are repressed or forgotten or marginalized by power. Why didn't he seize control here? He must have been tempted to do just that. But even this is not what his ministry or his purpose turns out to be. Strength and power and a plan to better this world, to take up the cross Jesus had to give up all that the cross was not. And if these temptations were set before Jesus, well, then surely in some form or another they are before us too in our lives. 
Oh, I think of all that I want to try to control. All that I attempt to grab and to wrench into place. I think of that ambition that tells me my life isn't big enough yet, that I need a few more tricks and a little more strength. I think of the idealism that tells me that I must do more all the time to prove to this world something about the love of God. I think about all of the strategy that keeps me bound to the systems and the thinking and the patterns of this world, always seeking control and power and forgetting Jesus' loyalty to a kingdom that is not of this world at all. You see, the tempter knows where we're weak. And so we are tempted to rise and not to fall. We are tempted to do what seems right and good and beneficial. The tempter does not approach us with rotten fruit, but with the very best tree in the garden. Make a meal of these stones. Swell the ranks of those who believe. Administer power with justice and mercy. This is not the voice of one with a horn and pitchfork seated on our shoulder. This is the voice of one who often looks like a friend. But when we give in to it, we are again taking up our belief that with enough goodwill, enough strategy, enough power, we can save ourselves. When the cross calls us to set down this need for control and to trust in another way. Sarah Miles is a writer and a minister in San Francisco. And she, in her ministry and in her writing about it, has modeled a way of openness to her city, working to help people encounter Jesus in their day-to-day -day lives. And that includes Ash Wednesday, with a practice that has become widely popular of ashes to go, or mobile ashes. Well, Reverend Miles has been doing this for years in San Francisco, and in this practice, she walks throughout her neighborhood to bus stops and to corner stores, to park benches and the like, with this sign that invites people to receive the mark of the cross on Ash Wednesday. And people respond to this. It surprised and baffled her at first because people would chase her down before catching a bus or strangers would be stopped at a stoplight and they'd lift their baby out the window to have them marked with this ashen cross. And Miles describes the relief and the gratitude that she experiences from people as they receive this smudged symbol of dust and death. And she's wondered a lot about this. And she suspects that it's because what we all want from this symbol is that reminder that we are not ultimately in control. She's gone to hospitals with these ashes, and she's marked patients in the midst of difficult circumstance, and they have found rest and comfort in this mark of the cross. And she's described how she even sees that same rest and assurance among the medical staff and all of their expertise observing this, it's as if even the doctors are relieved at this cross that reminds them that ultimately even they are not in control. And if we carry this cross, maybe all of us who have heard the voice of the tempter can start to hear again 
in bolder, more vivid ways the promises of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul writes, the one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will God not also graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus goes out through the wilderness because that's where he finds all of us. All of us gathered around just as tempted as we can be, and we know what happens as he leaves. He moves from that wilderness to the temple, to the mountain. And his movements, notice, they follow these three temptations. He knows the path to redemption wasn't through satisfying his own hunger, but he does go on to feed thousands on the shores of Galilee so that they could come to a deeper understanding of the mercy of God. And he declined the offer to throw himself down from the heights of the temple to prove who he was, but he does enter that temple and overturn the tables of those who had failed to make his father's house a place where all were received. And he doesn't take the offer of a throne, but he takes up a cross. And it's there that he faces his final temptation, this one that echoes the words of the tempter in the desert. If you are the son of God, you can come down from there. But he remembers his commitment in the wilderness, and so he prays from the cross, Father, into your hands. I commend my spirit, and he stretches out his arms in trust, trust, trust. And it looks like an end. It looks like it's over. It looks like this way of the cross ends right there in defeat. But trust. Let us trust and remember what happens as we do. That something stirs. Something beyond the ways of this world and the mystery of God. Something hidden from our eyes as though behind stone. Something rising. And telling us that it is not an end at all. But a beginning. That it is not death, but life like we've only begun to imagine. That it is not defeat, but a world as we only have dreamed it could be. And friends, if this is true of Jesus, then it might just be true for us too. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.